Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, June 19th. It is Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to all you fathers there and here. And happy Father's Day to my father, Herman Yon, in Rock Hill, South Carolina. We continue looking at the book of Job. One of the great benefits of the book of Job to us is not only the discussion of its central theme, but also the various glimpses that we get in these, these three friends, these three acquaintances of Job, who of various types of, of what we would call um, uh, Phariseeism. Um, we know that the Pharisaical party did not surface until many centuries after Job was written, but in the New Testament, the Pharisees were one of the enemies, right, of Jesus. And, and Phariseeism is, is always orthodoxy without true godliness. It is an appearance of being orthodox, in other words, correct in theology and even righteous in outward behavior, but actually it represents a distortion, if you will, of the truth that is in Christ. And here we have three Pharisees who are assaulting Job. They they represent to us three styles of Phariseeism. And, and, and as we read them, we can see often that they represent what our attitudes have been. And this is one of the reasons why this book was written, to show us how, how wrong these friends were. At the end of the book, God plainly see, says that these men did not treat Job in the right way, that they are wrong. This is a revelation to us that Phariseeism is one of the most deadly enemies of the truth in Christ today. In many ways, the church is in danger of falling into Phariseeism, a kind of outward rightness with an inward wrongness. So as we look at these these men, we, we can perhaps recognize some features about ourselves and some things that, that I need to, to correct or I need correction on. Zophar is the one that we call Zophar the Zealous. He tends to be hot-headed and, and impassioned in his addresses. He represents the type of Phariseeism that comes on heavy with really strong words and strong outbursts of feeling. He, he tries to carry the argument by the force of its eloquence and delivery and in, in, in its appearance. And especially in this, he his last appearance in the book in chapter 20, where he says, Therefore my thoughts answer me, because of my haste within me, I hear censure which insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. This man, quite quite possibly the youngest of the three friends, although we don't know how old he was, seems to be greatly insulted by the fact that Job does not give in to their argument that sin is always judged by God and that suffering is a sign that we, in fact, have sinned. This is the continual argument of these three friends Joe of Job. And, and Zophar is very upset at Job's resistance to this. So he confesses in these words that he's, he's impatient in his speech, and insulted, actually, in his spirit. It, it's out of this that he speaks with this great deal of passion to Job. And beginning with verse 4 through the rest of the chapter, we, we get his final argument, which is nothing but repetition of what he said over and over and over again. The wicked are always punished. In verses 4 through 11, Zophar's argument is, the prosperity of the wicked is always short. As he says in verse 5, the joy of the godless is for 
but for a moment. Then verses 12 through 18, he, he describes the punishment of wicked as being very certain. There, there's no way to avoid it. Though the wicked seek to do so, they, uh, they revel in their prosperity. God will certainly bring judgment on them. Now, Zophar means now, in this present life, the wicked, the unrighteous, the ungodly, those who ignore God cannot escape his judgment. God's going to get them sooner or later. And then in verses 19 through 22, through 22, Zophar describes the wicked as doing things that are clearly apparent, that the evil comes out in the open. And he is suggesting that because Job has gone through this time of torment when with these awful boils breaking out on him, and it's evident that he is evil too in, in, in his coming into the open. And then he describes the terrible fate of the wicked to fill his belly to the full of God will send his fierce anger into him and it rain upon him as his food. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike through him. That's chapter 20 verses 23 through 24. Utter darkness is hid up for his treasures. That's verse 26. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. Verse 27. And then in verse 29, this is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. And then in chapter one, we get Job's very reasoned reply. There, there are times when Job speaks sharply to his friends and other times, maybe when the pain is not as intense, he's able to speak a little more calmly, maybe a bit more, uh, less dispassionately. And, and here in chapter 21, we see a careful attempt on his part to answer these arguments. He begins kind of with this appeal for, for hearing. He says, listen carefully to my words. Let, let this be your consolation. Bear with me and I will speak. And after I've spoken, mock on. As for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled and lay your hand on your mouth with astonishment. When I think of it, I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Basically saying here, uh, if you can't help me, at least listen to me. Let, that can be your consolation. You're trying to console me, and it's not helping. But if you would listen to what I have to say, that would be some help from you. And You're not a problem. It is God who's my problem, he suggests. Not man, but God. I don't understand him. And then he says, it's my condition, my pain, my anguish that forces me to search and try to come to answers with that as an introduction. He, he then examines the argument of these friends that that punishment is always the result of sin. And verses seven through 13, he says that the facts contradict what these friends say. In fact, he says the whole lives of the wicked are often untroubled. Why, why do wicked live, reach old age and, and grow mighty in power? Their children are established in their presence, their offspring before their eyes, their houses are safe from fear, no rod of God is on them, their bull breeds without fail, their cow calves and does not cast her calf. They send forth their little ones like a flock and their children dance, they sing to the tambourine and they rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. Their whole life is lived, Job argues, and nothing ever seems to trouble them. They are outwardly and openly wicked, and yet they're happy. Their families grow up well. They seem to be free from difficulty. You know, I think if we're, if we're honest, many of us have felt this way. We see those that we think ought to be under the judgment of God, but they're not. They, they seem to be completely free of trouble, and we're, and we're faced with this question of the fairness of God. And his second argument is that they even defy God and they still prosper. They, they say to God, depart from us. We do, we do not desire the knowledge of, of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? 
And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. That's chapter 21, verses 14 and 16. Hey, I don't agree with this, Job says, but that, that's what they actually say. They defy God. They ask him to get out of their lives. They resist him, and God lets it be. Nothing ever happens to them. They seem to live untroubled lives, and God doesn't strike them down. He goes on to point out that God's judgment is, is very infrequent, actually, verses 17 through 18. How often is that the lamp of the wicked is put out? that their calamity comes on them, that God distributes pain in his anger, that they are like straw in the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away. Many people who deserve punishment from God's hand seem to live without ever being touched, Job says. And then he argues God's judgment's delayed. And finally, judge God's judgment is, is, is very uneven. Will any teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those that are on high? One dies in full prosperity, being wholly at ease and secure, his body full of fat and the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, having never tasted of good. And they lie down just alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. Life seems to be unfair. There is a basic unfairness at the root of things, and this is what causes many people to be bothered by the claims of Christians about a loving, faithful, just, and holy God. We, we often hear the question raised, if, if there is a good God, then why does he let this kind of thing happen? And Job's raising the same question. He, he says to these pious and respectable friends, your, your arguments do not square up with the facts. You say God always visits wrath on the wicked. What about these wicked people who live without a touch? God never does anything to them. What, what about the fact that he seems to treat people very unfairly? Folks who seem to deserve nothing but the grace of God, who are loving and gentle and kind people have endless problems and they die forsaken. And some who are selfish and cruel and self-centered are the ones who seem to be able to live without struggle. What about this? And then he turns to examine his friends themselves, and he points out the falseness of their friendship. In verse 27, Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. For you say, Where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked dwelt? They were referring, of course, to Job. He says, I know you're thinking that I'm a good example of the truth of your argument, because God has taken away my wealth, my family, my possessions. And you're saying to yourself, Aha, where is all the wealth of this man? Here's the proof right here that what we say is true. And though they were not saying it quite as boldly, Job says, I know that what you were thinking, your hidden uh, surmisings, I know, I also know your unsupported convictions here. Have you not asked those who travel the roads and do you not accept their testimony that the wicked man is spared in the day of calamity and that he is rescued in the day of wrath? Who declares his way to his face and who requites him for what he has done when he is born to the grave watch is kept over his tomb the clods of the valley are sweet to him all men follow after him and those who go before him are innumerable basically job tells his friends if if you'll just ask among the the traveling salesmen the people who get around and see life you'll find that the support that they'll you'll find that they support what i'm saying that the wicked often escape daily calamity it's not just true around here. It's true everywhere. The wicked live above the law, and nobody says to them uh, that they're doing wrong. They get by with it. They die highly honored in their death, and, and their graves are adorned and guarded, and God does nothing about it. 
So then in verse 34, he says, so how then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left in your answers but falsehood. If you intend to argue with Job, we had better get our arguments well in hand. This man is able to see through the error of logic in these people's position. They have a theology that does not square with experience. And that is where the problem lies. These friends represent people, and there are many around. We have done it ourselves, who put God in a box. They, they have what they think is a clear understanding of all the ways of God, and they can predict how he's going to act. But when he acts in a way that they do not understand and do not expect, they have no way of handling it because their creed and their creed, they have faith in and not it, it's their faith in their creed and not in God himself. And that's what Job is learning. His creed has been demolished by his experiences. He has he 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 has had to file his theology in the wastebasket because it did not fit what what he was going through. Someone has well said that a man with a true experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. These men are unable to answer Job because his experience rings true. That concludes the second round of addresses. And in chapter two, we begin the third and final round where only two of these friends speak. This brings us back to Eliphaz, whom we have called Eliphaz the elegant. He, he appears always to be calm, speaking smoothly um, and obviously courteous in the way he says things, but by now he's beginning to get upset and angry. And, and as often happens when someone like that, he, he eventually just loses his cool entirely and begins to pour out accusations on old poor Job. Though through this chapter, we'll see that he accuses Job of, of, of imaginary motives. He invents false charges against him. He assumes rather than insulting uh, concepts that Job holds. And he, and he ends with some very inappropriate sort of exhortations. So first of all, the imagined motives in chapter two, can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. It is any pleasure, literally profit to the almighty if you're righteous, or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? He's inferring that Job thinks he's defending himself to the glory and honor of God, that God's integrity is at stake. And if Job confesses anything wrong, God will falter and fail thereby and that God's image in the eyes of men hangs on Job's ability to appear righteous. Now, Job never thought that throughout this account. Job's view of God is, is, is that though he does not understand what God is doing, he sees him as a God of justice and of righteousness. He is puzzled and uncertain and has no way of applying that to his own situation at the moment, but he never thinks of God as being anything other than a God of holiness so it's an entirely false charge. And then he goes on, it is, it is for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you. Here, Eliphaz is suggesting that Job feels that, that God is unfairly punishing him. But once again, Job never said that. He, if he did, he would be doing what Satan wanted him to do. He would be accusing and blaspheming God. It is true that Job asked God questions about his motives, but never once does he say, you're at fault and charge God with unrighteousness, as Eliphaz suggests. I think this is one of the most helpful things that we can learn from the book of Job, because in our testing, in our pressures, in our times of torment, 
Satan is trying to get us to do the very thing he tried to get Job to do. He is trying to get us to blame and accuse God, accuse him of being an unfair and unjust God. If that is where he brings us to, then we fall and we have gone over the brink and become guilty of an accusation against the God of righteousness. Job does not do that. He comes close, but he refuses to do that. And so upset and angry at Job's resistance against these charges, Eliphaz goes on to invent out of the blue sort of unsupported charges against him. Is not your wickedness great? There, there's no end to your iniquities. For you you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing. You have stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink. And you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and, and the favored man dwelt in it. You have, sent wind, you have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are around about you and sudden terror overwhelms you. Your light is darkened so that you cannot see. None of these things were true. He simply begins to invent things. And today there's a kind of Phariseeism, if you will, that seeks to get us to agree with its limited theology. And if we refuse to do so, we begin to have charges poured out against us. There's nothing worse than this kind of unfounded, murderous, slanderous attack that Job has to face here from his so-called friend. Eliphaz goes on to assume rather insulting concepts that he thinks uh, that he thinks Job held. Is not God high in the heavens? See the highest stars, how lofty they are. Therefore you say, what does God know? Can he judge throughout the deep darkness that clouds enwrap him so that he does not see? This is a childish charge against Job. That The trouble with you, Job, is that you think God is such a limited being that he can't even see what you're doing. He's up high in the heaven, and the clouds come between you, and they shut you off, and you think you're getting by with hiding your sin because God can't see through the clouds. It's ridiculous. Job has already demonstrated that he has the consciousness of the mighty and of the mightiness, the greatness, the majesty, and the mystery of God far beyond what these friends hold, but they can't live with that. They cannot accept it. So they charge him with these concepts, these childish concepts. He goes on to charge him with the only pretending to hate iniquity. In, in other words, you only pretend to hate things that are bad. And then Eliphaz suggests that Job is saying that he rejects the wicked in their way of life when actually he holds to it. He's an imposter. Verse 17, he mimics Job when he says, they said to God, depart from us. And what can the Almighty do to us? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. We notice that Job said, those very things back in the last chapter in verse 16, Eliphaz is mocking him. This, that is what you say. The counsel of the wicked is far from me, but you do not, you don't mean it. You're just as wicked as the rest of them. So with this mockery and scorn, he tries to break through Job's argument. And then he, he ends with this phrase language, this beautiful language, this man, he's, he has a, a great command of language, but he ends with a very inappropriate exhortation to Job to confess his sin and return to God and God will pour out blessing on him. All of which certainly is true. But if Job could find the sin that they claim he is guilty of, but as he examines his life, he knows that there's, there's nothing he's not dealt with. And though he, he does not claim sinlessness, he does say that he cannot find what the trouble is. And that brings us then to chapters 23 and 24, where we have Job's expression of this, his deepest problem. 
And at this point, he, he does not even attempt to answer the arguments anymore. He simply cries out of this troubled heart in the presence of these friends, expressing halfway to God and halfway to them how he feels. And, and he, he asked two questions, one in chapter 23 and one in chapter 24. And, and these are the great unanswered questions that we continually ask today that lie at the root of a lot of doubt and much unwillingness to accept the presence of God. And, and in chapter 23, Job is asking, why is God so seemingly absent from human affairs? He begins with his own longing for God. Today also my complaint is bitter. My, his hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. He, he's having a bad day here. And he cries out, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to a seed. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Though his, though, though his pain increases, his frustration grows because he can't find any way to get into contact and argue the point with God and get some answers to his problem. And yet in the midst of the darkness, there, there's this unshaken confidence in God. And in verse six, he says, would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would give heed to me. There, there an upright man could reason with him and I should be acquitted forever be my judge. Many times we've seen this. Job, Job feels that if he could get a chance to just put it all out there before God, the situation as he sees it, God himself in his basic justice would admit that he was right. So he, he describes his search. Behold, I go forward, but he, he's not there and backward. I can't perceive him on the left hand. I seek him, but I can't hold, behold him. I turn to the right and I can't see him. Have we ever felt that way? Have we ever felt abandoned that we can't, we can't find God, we can't find any answers, wanting some relief from the, the mental anguish that increases our doubt and troubles us? And at this point, Job again declares in his own righteousness and his faith that God will set him through at last. Before he knows the way that I take, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And that expresses a great deal of confidence that God is a God of justice. And Job says, I don't understand what I'm going through. I felt, I felt like I was doing the right thing and still this torment goes on, but I know that God will explain it to me someday. That's, a, that's as high as his faith can rise at the moment. And then he goes on to restate his sense of righteousness. And, and we're not going to read it all, but, but in chapter 24, he raises the second question that many of us ask, why is God silent? Why doesn't he judge evil? Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? Job 24. He goes on to describe vividly the conditions of life. Thieves, scoundrels flourish. Poor people suffer terribly. They're mistreated. They, they, don't, they, don't, they have to scratch out for a living. They're exposed to the elements. They lie all night naked without clothing. They have no covering in the cold. They're wet in the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock and need shelter. He says that they're exploited by the rich, that they work for nothing in their fields and, and fruit groves. And finally, they die or they're wounded and they cry out to God. From out of the city, the dying groan and the soul of the wounded cries for help. Yet God pays no attention to their prayer. Job 24, verse 12. Job goes on to describe how the criminals strike in darkness and God doesn't do anything about it. Verses 14 through 15. The murderer rises in the dark that he may kill the poor and needy in the, in the, and in the night as... He is as a thief. The eye of the adulterer also waits for twilight. These adulterers slink around in darkness, lurking there to do their evil, evil deeds. And then he faces the question, why does God delay justice? Job says his friends argue that God invariably punishes the wicked. He sums up their argument in verses 18 through 20, but he says the facts are quite different. 
They, they, they feed on the barren, childless woman. They do no good to the widow, yet God prolongs the life of, of the mighty by his power. They rise up when they despair of life. There are two great questions that hang unanswered in life. Why is God so absent or appear to be so absent when he is so needed? And why is he so silent when it certainly appears that he should speak? It is only when we get into the New Testament that we get any direct revelation to help us with this. Both Paul and Peter tell us that these are but evidences of God's patience and his long suffering with humanity. Paul tells us in Romans, his goodness is meant to lead us to repentance. Romans 2 fail. So, so if we're getting by with things now, it's only because God is withholding his, his hand that he might give us a chance to learn the truth about ourselves. Peter says, don't accuse God of slowness in fulfilling his promises as men count slowness because God is long suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but wanting to give all a chance to come to repentance. Second Peter three, nine. And that's why God lets these things go on. If he started judging, he would, he would have to include me. He would have to include you. He would have to include us as well as everyone else. And Job has not come to that answer yet. So that that question remains. You see, we, we, whenever we ask those kinds of questions, we conveniently exclude ourselves from the bad people that need the judgment. So the final speaker comes in, Bildad, Bildad the brutal, intellectual, the theorist, cold, everything worked out carefully in his theology. And he has a short address here consisting of the same two arguments. They're worn out by now. First of all, God is all-powerful which we know there's no way of combating the greatness, the power, the wisdom, the insight of God. Of course it's true. And then the second point then, well, how then can man be righteous before God? How can he who is born of woman be clean? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not clean in his sight. How much less than man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. Chapter 25 verses four through six. It's interesting to see that the scriptures never treat humanity like a worm. God's view of humanity is that though he is in deep trouble and though he has turned his back on the light and plunged himself into darkness and is reaping the result of his own iniquity, God never treats him as a worm. He treats him as a very deeply loved individual and a very valuable commodity whom he is ready to give tremendous commitment to in order that he might redeem him. It is true that only when, a, when humanity admits that he cannot help himself, that, that he is indeed a wretched person, that he can be helped. But God never sees us as a worm. And Bildad reflects this very narrow theology that does not fit the facts. And then in chapter 26, Job hangs, hangs up the phone in a sense. He says, there's no use talking to them anymore. And his answer to Bildad is one of the rather deep and, and rich irony. Oh, how, how you have helped him who has no power. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. With those help you have uttered words and those spirit have come forth from you sarcastic praise in which he's suggesting that that they have been no help to him at all however job needs to learn something from all this and we'll see then in the next chapters that he does oswald chambers reminds us that god can never make us into wine if we object to the fingers that he uses to crush us with 
or if we do, it will be a great pain to ourselves. Job does not see here that God is also using these friends in his life. Satan has sent them. God is using them. And we will soon see the result in Job's life. Once again, he goes on to state the majesty of God in a brilliant moving passage. And he closes with this word in verse 14. Lo, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power. Who can understand? What he says is simply that there is a majesty in God that no man can understand. Even when we have understood something of the greatness of his wisdom and majesty in nature, when we have learned of his omnipresence, his, um, his omnipotence and his omniscience, and when we know that as part of our theology, it still does not explain all of his ways. God is much bigger than the box that any of us have built to put him in. A verse from one of Robert Browning's poems where he was described how as a young man in the arrogance of his youth, he worked out all of his theology so that God is carefully boxed in. He knows the answers to all the theological riddles of life. There's no place for God in it. He can handle it all himself. He comes to an old bishop and tells him he does not need God any longer. And then the old bishop says to him, just when we are safest, there's a sunset touch, a fancy from a flower bell someone's death, a chorus ending from Euripides. And that's enough for 50 hopes and fears, the grand perhaps. What he means is just when we think we have God all worked out, something happens that we can't handle. It doesn't fit our box. We see a sunset that is so moving that awakens depths in us, emotion that we can't even explain. Someone dies and we don't, we don't know how to handle it. We see a flower and, and it moves us. We're touched by it. We listen to a chorus ending from Euripides and it moves us in a strange way. It doesn't fit the facts. And in all these ways, God is breaking through into our lives. The grand perhaps. And that's enough for 50 hopes and fears. It's the great mystery of God. Oswald Chambers says this of Job. We must get hold of the great souls, the men who have been hard hit, hit and have gone to the basis of things and whose experiences have been preserved for us by God, that we may know where we stand. Amen. And God bless.